you for listening to this message from the North Gate. I believe, and you may believe this or not believe this, and, and to what degree it's true, I can't say, but I think there's truth in this statement, that the American church is sick. Now, how, how come I would say that? You say, but Mark, wait a minute. Like, I, I watch TV, and there's big churches all over America, and man, we've got great worship teams, and the worship music that's produced is just excellent quality, and uh, there seems to be great celebrity pastors everywhere, right? And mega churches everywhere. And so why would we make a statement that the American church is sick? And I think that the reason that I would make that statement, I don't know how sick, I don't know if it's on life support. I don't know if it's just got a little fever, a little cough. Uh, you know, I, I cannot say qualitatively how sick the church is, but I believe the American church is sick because the culture reflects it. Okay, so I want to give you a definition of success in the church. It's not the size of the church. It's the condition of the city. The success or failure of this or any other local church is the condition of the city. Because we cannot really claim that we're doing the work of Jesus and that we've done so much for God if the cities are in ruin and people are going to hell. Everywhere that Paul went, he impacted cities. Every New Testament book written to a church identifies the church with its city. When Jesus spoke to the churches in Revelation, he identified each church by its city. And it's the condition of Streetsboro that defines the success or failure of this church. And we judge ourselves by the conditions of our cities. And if you would judge America by the condition of our culture, we're sick. I mean, we're sick. I, I, I don't know any other way to put it. And, uh, you know, you know we, we, we have to have compassion for those that are dying, for those who are confused. And we just have dying and confused people. Without going into an essay on the problems with American society and American culture, um, I would just say that probably most of us agree that the American church is not functioning to its capacity. We can do better, and we better do better. Now, how did we get here? That's really the question that we have to explore. If we're sick, how did we get sick? What is the virus? Like, what's going on? What are some of the symptoms? And how can we rectify that? So over the course of the next few minutes, I want to talk about that. But first of all, I want to say that you can't really define sickness qualitatively until you first define health. You say, well, this person's sickly. Well, how do you know they're sickly? Well, just look at them. Well, compared to this one, this one doesn't look too bad. Well, compared to that one, though, this person does. And so you get into a comparison game. And so you have to ask yourself, if the church is sick, then what does a healthy church look like? The only way to find a healthy church is to find it in Scripture, is to go to the book of Acts, is to go as closely as we can to the original apostles and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and look at the church in that time to try to figure out what was in Jesus' mind when he said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. The first time that Jesus ever used the word church is the Greek word ekklesia. It's in Matthew 16, and you know the story, of course. He's he's in Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they give him two or three answers. But then he asks this question, more important. It's not what people think. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter spoke up and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, well said, that's good. And then he makes this statement, upon this rock, you are Peter, and upon this rock, 
Now, some might take that to mean Peter as an individual, that he's the rock upon which Jesus builds his church. I don't see that at all. I think that it's the process of revelation by which an individual becomes convinced that Jesus is the Lord. It is that process of revelation by God to an individual that convinces them that Jesus is Lord. It's upon that rock Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia. Now what is interesting about that word, it's not Hebrew. It's not a word that describes synagogues or the temple or the Torah. It's not, you know, Jesus could have said, upon this rock I'll build my Sanhedrin, and they would have understood this, but he said, upon this rock I'll build my ecclesia. Now this word came from the Greek world. In fact, if you read Acts 19, which is the story of Paul in Ephesus, the word ecclesia is used three times, but it's not translated church. It's translated assembly. And it's the story of when Demetrius the silversmith caused a riot and they all gathered in the theater and Paul was going to go in and they said, don't go in there, man, they're they're going to try to kill you. And then the city clerk came into the theater and said that we are going to be in trouble and called into an account for this illegal ecclesia. And the word is translated assembly three times, but if you look it up, it's the word ecclesia because the Greeks understood ecclesia as this. It is a gathering of citizens brought together to make decisions for the city. Think about that. The ecclesia was used commonly to describe, and the first time it was used is, and I looked it up just the other day, it was like uh, 600 B.C., something like that, in the Greek cities. They would call together the ecclesia, which were the citizens of a city called together like a city council. So Jesus might have said in English, In contemporary language, upon this rock I will build my congress. Upon this rock I will build my city council. Upon this rock I will build my parliament. My parliament. My government. My ecclesia. So the idea that Jesus had was, I'm going to create something new. Because he didn't use the word synagogue. Even though in just a minute the word synagogue will be important. But he didn't say synagogue. He said, on this rock I will build my ecclesia. My gathering of citizens of the heavenly kingdom brought together to literally legislate in the city for the sake of that city. That's what church is supposed to be. That's the end game. Now we worship and we tithe and we hear sermons and we have kids ministry and picnics and we do all of those things. But the end purpose of everything the church does is for this city. You exist for Streetsboro. This is why you're here. And then whatever else in the region, there might be cities you know, beyond this. You get up in this area, it's hard to tell you where you're at. You just kind of go from one city to another, and it's like you're not, you're not sure where you're at. But I know we're in Streetsboro. At least that's what the GPS said. Okay. So upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. All right. So Paul went about the Roman Empire, and he's going to create these ecclesias. Well, okay. Well, Jesus didn't leave a lot of uh, information. You know, there weren't a lot of directions. The New Testament has not been written yet. And so Paul was a formally trained rabbi studying at the feet of Gamaliel. So Paul as a Jewish rabbi was an interesting figure. And one of the advantages that Paul had is he was not born in Israel and he did not grow up in Israel. He grew up in the city of Tarsus. He grew up in a Roman city and he grew up a Roman citizen. Interesting. So Paul was formerly trained as a rabbi, but had an understanding of the culture in which the church was going to penetrate, 
It was so important for him. This is why Peter could not do what Paul did. And they said, Peter, you're going to be the apostle to the Jews. Paul, you're the apostle to the Gentiles. Because Paul had an understanding of both what Jesus came from, Judaism, but where the church needed to go into the Roman Empire. He was the perfect person to build the bridge. Now here is my absolute belief with how the original church was created. The original church was created after the pattern of the Jews of the diaspora. Now you may or, not, may or may not have heard that word diaspora. It sounds a lot like dispersed, and that's exactly where the word shares its commonality. The Jews of the diaspora, this is something you'll read in, in uh, religious literature. The Jews of the diaspora started with the exile of the Jews into Babylon. Now when you read Jeremiah 29, it's a very interesting chapter, and the Jews took it seriously. Because Jeremiah prophesied to them on their way to Babylon. And he said, build houses, plant vineyards, give your daughters to marry sons and your sons to daughters. Prosper and pray for the peace of the city because in its peace you will have peace. And when the Jews went to Babylon, they took him seriously. Now you read Daniel, for instance. He's a Jew, but they didn't bring them back to be slaves. They actually brought them back for them to, to amalgamate into the culture and then serve people. And Daniel, for instance, he was a high uh, person in authority. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the same. And so what happened to the Jews in Babylon? They actually carved out a little Jewish community, an enclave of Jewish society, an enclave of Jewish culture in Babylon. They were so successful in doing it when Nehemiah said, come on, boys, we're going to go back and build the temple. Most of them said, nah, we're good. I mean, we have this idea like they all were so excited to leave Babylon like the Jews did Egypt, but it wasn't that way at all because they had prospered. They prospered. And then this became what's called the diaspora. Over the course of the next 300 years, they drifted across all of Europe into Greece, into the... Italian peninsula where Rome is. In fact, they were so successful at preserving Jewish culture in foreign lands that everywhere that Paul went, if you've read your Bible, everywhere he went, he found synagogues. Every city he went to, where did those synagogues come from? They were created by what's called the Jews of the Diaspora. And here's what's amazing. 2,000 years later today, brother, you can go to Manhattan. You can go to Howell, New Jersey. You can go to Amsterdam. And you will find Jewish people living out the same model because they have learned for millennia how to be in the world but not of this world. Wow. I heard Ben Shapiro being interviewed by Joe Rogan. <clears throat> and Ben Shapiro is Jewish and he said... You know, just basically what I was saying, he said, we got a code we live by. And, and, and Rogan was like, well, you know, you, you, you won't let gay people in, for instance. Like, that bothers me. He says, sorry, but th we, we live by a code. Now, you don't have to live by our code. You can do whatever you want. But you know what? If you're going to be part of us, this is just the code we live by. And it's ancient. And it's not for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now here's, here's an interesting thing. Just, just track with me a little bit. There's something very powerful about exclusivity 
Hey, there's something very powerful about because once I, one thing I know about elite athletes, they want to be around other elite athletes. And if you put elite athletes in beginner's class, they don't even want to participate. Now you say, oh, Pastor Mark, that sounds so elitist. It sounds so, well, li- listen to me now. Listen, the church ain't for everybody. I mean, you're full of the spirit of Antichrist. You don't want us. If you don't want to die, this ain't for you. If you don't want to give your life away, this ain't for you. Go up the road and join the Elks. Seriously. Why would you want to be a part of a church if you're not willing to lay down your life? See, I'm not Amish. We have Amish people up here. We got them down in southern Ohio too. And and like like one of the reasons I'm not Amish is because, man, I just don't want to give this up. You know what I'm saying? It's like the beard ain't cool. I don't want to drive. I want to drive my car. I'm sorry. But it doesn't mean the Amish hate me. It just means they got a standard and they got a code they live by. And they have their own unique culture. And if I want to participate with them, I've got to be willing to die out to my life and adopt theirs. We have not had that standard in the church in America. We've lowered the bar so low, and we think we're just doing this, you know, out of, out of grace and love and compassion. But you know what? It's not compassionate to look at someone who's sick and then just keep telling them, you're perfect just the way you are. Yeah. You ever go to the doctor and you know you got something wrong with you, and the doctor's like, there ain't nothing wrong with you. <laughs> no, doc, I'm really serious. Like, I really got some, well, well no, you're, you're good just the way you are. No, doc, you don't understand. I, I got this, and I can't do this. It's, no, 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 you're okay. We just love you like you are. You know, Max Lucado wrote a book, God loves you just like you are, but loves you too much to let you stay that way. Yes, there's a demand for growth, a demand for maturity, a demand, you know, there's something about the church where we ought to say, I'm not sure you're ready to run with us. Because, you know, this thing's life. You understand? This is not a club. This is not just something you roll in, you roll out of and at your convenience. We're a family. We're an army. This means something. You know, like we're inviting you into a lifestyle of the redeemed. We're going to give you a commission. We're going to give you a purpose. We're going to give you a mission. We're going to set you on the rock. We're going to give you an eternity. We're going to show you exactly what God can do to you. You're going to blossom and bloom and all of the gifts of God come roaring out of you. But but here's what it costs you. Everything. Everything. Dude, maybe you're not ready. Do you think Jesus had a problem telling the rich young ruler? It costs you everything. And when he left, he let him go. That is where the Jews of the diaspora prospered. Now, there are three reasons why they prospered so greatly. Three things. Synagogue, rabbi, Torah. Synagogue, rabbi, Torah. Now, that is, those three things are three unique things that emerged from Judaism during exile. And it, it is the, probably the three pillars of Judaism to this very day. Now, you don't hear about synagogues in the Old Testament. You don't hear about uh, 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 rabbis. I mean, prophets and kings and priests, but not rabbis. And, and we know the Torah is part of the Old Testament. But the accumulation and the gathering of Torah was something that was a creation of the time where the Jews were dispersing across first the Greek and then Roman Empire. Now follow me, I'm going somewhere with this. 
What's the significance of synagogue rabbi and Torah? These. Number one, the Jews said, we're going to have a place where we gather. And it's going to be our cultural center. We're going to have our birthdays there. We're going to have our anniversary parties there. We're going to have our funerals there. Our bar mitzvahs, our bat mitzvahs, we're going to gather there on Sabbath. We're going to go there. We're going to make our local synagogue the center of our life. Boy, it's time. You know, American church is sick because we put church alongside all of the other activities of our life. Instead of it being the centerpiece. Whenever the tabernacle was built, all of Israel stopped and they did not set up their personal tent until they had set the Ark of the Covenant and then erected the tabernacle around it. Then the people of Israel set up their personal family tents. And what Haggai was referring to here is the temple of God was in ruin while everybody's doing their own thing. They're building their houses, they have beautiful homes, but they've let the temple, the place of their gathering, the center of the the hub of their culture, they've let it be destroyed and fall apart. And he's calling them to a revival. Now the Jews of the diaspora, this is real important. They were all over the Roman Empire and they created synagogues everywhere they went. The second thing was a rabbi. They had rabbis. Rabbis were church leaders. Rabbis were experts in the law. Rabbis understood what to do and what not to do. People sought out rabbis. Amazing things about the Jewish people in Europe. Before there was an international judiciary that governed international trade, Jews were trading with each other all over the world. And the reason they traded from Italy to Greece into Western Europe is because they had a series of synagogues and a set of rabbis that literally operated not just as teachers, but as lawyers and judges. And this is why Paul told the Corinthians, if you've got a problem, don't go to court. You got a problem in the church, you go to the elders. Don't you have people in your church that are smart enough and wise enough to bring a decision in these cases? Where did he get that idea? He got that idea from the Jews of the diaspora. Synagogue rabbis. Rabbis taught the word. People respected their rabbis. You know, your sons and your daughters, you would say, here's rabbi so-and-so, and the sons and daughters would bring respect and honor. I mean, this is something that's so needed in our culture because we have a fatherless society. Especially with young men, they don't know how to relate with spiritual fathers or spiritual authority. Either we're freaked out and rebellious or or we just, you know, roll over and act like, you know, we don't know what to do with ourselves when there needs to be a healthy respect. And where that has taken place in its educational structure in the home, now that is almost entirely gone in our culture. The church might be the only place left where you can have spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. They raised up their children to respect their rabbis. The third kind of pillar there was the Torah, which is the Word of God. There had to be a sacred writing around which the culture was developed. It worked so well, as I said, that here we are, 2,000 years later, still working. Synagogue, rabbi, Torah. Now... What's that have to do with us? We're not Jewish. Well, Paul was commissioned to create ecclesias in places like Corinth, Philippi, Streetsboro. He's a classically trained rabbi. Grew up in a city that had a synagogue, a Torah, and rabbis. So when he went into Galatia and he went into Philippi and he went into Thessalonica, when he went to Ephesus, 
and he created churches, started ecclesias. What do you think was the pattern that he used to create the ecclesia? If you read the book of Acts, you'll find out everywhere he went, where did he go first? Synagogue. Walk into sit because he felt comfortable. He was a rabbi. He would be given a seat at the table. He would teach about Jesus, get about half of them saved, and then leave with them. <laughs> so when half of the people that start a new ecclesia of Jesus came from a Jewish synagogue, how do you imagine that they structured the new church? They structured it exactly in the model of the synagogue for which they were very apparently familiar with the patterns and the structures of the synagogue. So we would say, synagogue, rabbi, Torah, here's what the early church was. It was the ecclesia, the gathering of the church. It was pastors and elders. And then Paul quickly began to write letters. All of his letters he wrote within a 10-year period because he was obsessed with getting the Bible into people's hands so they could have a structure, a biblical structure, a document of authority. Say, well, okay, but what's that got to do with us? That has to do with the original pattern of the church. Now, let's talk about the American church. I think that there are three major forces that have forged the American church. I I know you're probably not all that into time, but all right. That's a dangerous thing to say. There are three forces that has forged the American church in the 20th century. One of them is the entertainment industry. Now, going back in the late 1800s, you know, entertainers were looked down upon. I mean, entertainers, if you were an actor, you were kind of only one step above a carny. Well, why was entertainment looked down upon? Who had time for such things? Like, you know, my great-great-grandparents came from Germany and went to Pike County, Ohio and made a living for 10 kids on the side of a hill that's nothing but stone and clay. Like, how did they do that? Did you think they had movie tickets? They weren't chilling out with Netflix in the evenings. There was no time for such frivolity. Life was about survival. What's interesting is that those concepts, those attitudes towards entertainment began to change in the 20th century. And the reason is because the Industrial Revolution fueled the middle class. And for the first time in human history, you had a middle class that was stronger than the upper class and the lower class. And the middle class were people like us that maybe had a few dollars at the end of the week. So guess what we did? We went to go see a movie. In the 1920s. In the 1930s, we actually got radios. Now, radio was such a powerful medium. Two things were very watershed moments in the radio industry. Number one is how Adolf Hitler used it to literally mass hypnotize an entire nation by radio, the speeches on radio. But the other watershed moment happened here in America with the broadcast of War of the Worlds. And people literally thought we were being invaded by Martians. The power of this new media was incredible. For the first time in human history, a very small group of people could literally control an entire nation. 
Then in the 1950s, we had television. Wow. I can remember the first television we got. Like late 60s, early 70s. I mean, that's way back, you know, when telephones had tails. <laughs> and, and, and TVs, you had to actually walk up and turn the channel. And then you had to go outside and change the antenna to get it pointed in the right. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm talking about. But in the 1960s, something happened. And that is, we had a whole new kind of superstar celebrity. By the 1960s, celebrities, actually before that, probably by the 1940s, celebrities were no longer looked down upon. Actors and entertainers became our little gods. And they were in our living room every night. And what television did, it brought physical beauty and glamour to the forefront. The watershed moment for television happened in the 1960 debate between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. People that listened to that debate on radio believed that Nixon won the debate. But everyone that watched it on TV believed that Kennedy won the debate. You say, why? Because Kennedy was a good-looking young guy, and Richard Nixon was sweating and wiping sweat from his forehead. And the power of television and its glamour and physical beauty literally began to mold the appreciation and mold the value systems of America. You say, what's that have to do with the church? Because once the televisions were in the living rooms, then came the TV preachers. And then TV preaching and TV celebrities. Well, in order to be a celebrity, you had to be cute and you had to be talented. And you know, before church, I remember watching some of the quartets and watching Rex Humbard and watching, watching uh, Catherine Kuhlman before we would go to church in the morning and we'd watch it on TV and they were all so elaborate. And then I went to our little country church and I would think, man, this is boring. Look at these old people. I mean, I was a kid. Look at this. Well, these are, these are old geezers. What in the world? Like here's Aunt Wilma on the piano and, you know, Mabel over here on the organ. It's like, how, how could they compete with Rex Humbard and the Cathedral Quartet? This was the stuff that people began to expect from their local church. And things began to change. Now, put that on hold and let's bring up the second great influence in the American church, and that is giant corporations. Giant corporations and big businesses came in the form of malls, shopping malls, like the indoor shopping malls. You remember those days? You had this incredible experience with this bigger-than-life shopping center. And then came Kmart, Walmart. And like you could go buy your tires and get your groceries and buy the school supplies for your kids and get some clothes and then check out. You had this mammoth one-stop shopping option that Americans came to value and appreciate. And then all of a sudden in the 1970s, the birth of what was later called megachurch. In 1970, there were 14 churches in America, over 2,000 people. 14. By year 2000, there was 1,400. Now you would think, wow, we must be in the throes of revival. The opposite is true. As the number of mega churches grew, the number of people attending churches shrank. 
Today, it's even worse. Barna, for the first time since they've been polling Christians since the 1950s, this is the first time ever in our nation where less than half of the people in society say they belong to a church. Now, I didn't say attend a church. I said belong to a church. People that actually attend are even smaller than that. I remember talking to my dad once, and my dad started his ministry in the late 40s. Of course, through the 50s, he passed away. 2012, I think. And uh, dad told me something. He said, Mark, we never let our churches get over 200. Now, my dad was a district superintendent before his 30th birthday. 29 years old, he was a district superintendent. Pastored successfully at a young age. But he said, we never let our churches get over 200. I said, really? I said, well, how come? He said, you know, it just didn't seem like we were able to fulfill what God wanted us to do if we got over 200. I said, Dad, what do you mean by that? He said, well, when you pastor over 200 people, you stop working in the ministry, and you have to start working on the ministry. And you know, as you read the books and understand the literature, when you get about 200 people, it does change. So, Dad, well, Dad what did you do? Tell people to stop growing? Oh, no, no. We just planted more churches. He said, we did it all the time. We'd grow our churches to 200. We'd split off, and, you know, 75 to 100 people would go somewhere else. We'd have churches. He said, that's why we have churches all over the southern half of this state. And, and, and that model is kind of coming back, but my point is this. My point is this. Listen, this is, this is what the data reveals, is that America was better off when we had 20 churches of 100 than one church of 2,000. You say, well, I don't know about that. Yeah. Number one, because the statistics just prove it out. But number two is because you can truly make disciples as a family at a certain size. And when you grow beyond that size, you have to completely change the very nature of your church and your ministry to contain and continue that type of numeric growth. Now, I'm not trying to be critical, and I hope I don't sound critical. I'm just saying, consider your ways. That's what we're trying to do. The first great impact on the American church was the entertainment industry to where we feel like we've got, to, we've, we've got to be entertaining with people. And then the second great impact was the giant corporations. The third great impact on the church was the charismatic renewal. The charismatic renewal largely came out of the Jesus people movement. The second stream of the charismatic renewal of the 60s came out of the traditional churches that got filled with the Holy Spirit. So you had Lutherans and Methodists and Episcopalians. Now the two streams that came out of this charismatic renewal, it was very, it was very uh, peculiar, peculiar, maybe that's not the right word, very interesting that both of these streams were high on experience but low on doctrine. Like the Jesus people, it was like got high, you know, got high on drugs. Now I'm high on Jesus, and that, that's okay. I'd rather get high on Jesus than high on drugs. Yeah. But sooner or later, you got to go to the school of ministry. Otherwise, your boat will have no structure. You've got to have structure. This is why Paul, when he started churches, was adamant that they have elders and they teach doctrine, Torah, synagogue elders, Torah. This was the pattern of the New Testament. 
But in America, coming out of the charismatic renewal, people were strong on experience, weak on doctrine. Well, you know, they're converted hippies and like, like everything's cool. Like, yeah, okay. They created youth culture. You know, before the Jesus people, there were no youth groups. They literally brought youth culture and contemporary worship in the church. Like what they have given us is amazing. Problem is, they didn't bring the structure along with it. God is looking for worshipers who worship Him in spirit and truth. Spirit is experiential. Truth, listen, truth is as solid as concrete. It's doctrinal. Now, the people that came out of the traditional denominations, they just assumed that all of their doctrine that they had been given all of their life would follow them into the next season, but it didn't. And what we have in the 1970s is convergence of the three things I've talked about. The entertainment industry with mass media. Big business and one-stop shopping, mega churches. High on experience, making you feel good, motivating you, but weak on doctrine. And in the last 50 years, since 1970 until now, American culture has been deteriorating and now is actually unraveling at an alarming pace. Something must change. In the world today, less people attend church. Pastors are quitting in record numbers. 38% of the pastors today, anywhere in the United States of America, 38% of them today are planning on quitting when they find an exit ramp. Two-thirds of the pastors who start pastoring will not retire a pastor. Name one other industry that loses two-thirds of the people before they reach retirement. Churches are closing down in record numbers. 7,700 churches a year are closing down in America. 150 churches this month closed down. The churches starting to take their place are about 3,000 a year. We are literally losing 4,700... Yes, 4,700 churches yearly that are closing down. We think, oh, there's a church on every corner. No, there's not. There might be buildings, but there's not churches. We look at America and we've got a problem. I mean, we've got a big problem, ladies and gentlemen. This church could be part of that solution. When you look at what the results that are happening, people are attending church, pastors are quitting, churches are closing down. Something's wrong. And I just go back to my original statement. I think the American church is sick. Now, what I've tried to do is to show you the original pattern with the Jews of the Diaspora and the early ecclesia. Look at the influence that converged in the 1970s of entertainment and mass media combined with big corporations and big, uh, big, big footprint like merchants and then the influence of the charismatic renewal brought together all of that converging in the 1970s. That really has pushed the church forward. Now, what are we going to do about it? I want to conclude with what I believe are going to be seven trends in the future for the church. Seven trends for the future of the church in America. If we're broke and we're going to get fixed, if we have any hope of changing and realigning ourselves with the original biblical model, listen to these seven things. Consider them. Just consider them. Number one, church is going to be local. Local church is going to come back into fashion. 
And I know through 2020, a lot of people went online, and, but, but that is not going to be the pattern forever moving forward. I was on a conference in 2020. I was part of a conference, a big Zoom conference. <clears throat> and there was, I think they had 12 guests. And I was on there and I listened to all of the guests. And they, the, the question was, you know, has church changed forever? And is it always going to be online and video? Every one of them, 11 of them said, yes, this is the new wave of the future. And I just, I just kept listening to all of them. And finally, I, just, I was like the last one to go. I said, guys, let me just be the, the voice of contention, if nothing else. I believe no. I believe people got to be in a building. I mean, you got to smell the sweat from the person beside you. It's been worshiping God. You know what I'm saying? You got to smell their bad breath. You got to hear their kids. You got to feel them kick the chair in the back. You got to, you know, you, you got to be jumping up and down and dancing up here and feeling the music, the vibration of these subs. You got to feel the environment. You got to be in the room. I said, nothing will ever take the place of that. Nothing will ever take the place of that. But church is going to be local. What I mean is people are going to be desiring. You watch, you watch what will happen in America. It's already beginning, I believe. People are wanting to connect. But they don't want to connect to some big box retailer church where they're one part of a number. People are going to want to connect with real people. We've got to be able to accommodate them, and there's various ways to do that. But church is going to be local. Trend number two, doctrine is going to be in vogue. What was the ark that Noah built? It was a structure in chaos. Our culture can't even define a man from a woman. We we can't really settle on that anymore. The issue with classes, with ethnicities, I'm to the point where I think the only hope for America is not another political party. It's here. And people are going to want answers that are solid and structural. You have to have the structural components of a tent in order to live in it. You have to have the structural support beams like are in this room in order to worship in this room. And for a long time, the church has ignored the structure. We thought that doctrine was boring and doctrine is unnecessary. Just give me another song. Don't give me all that doctrine. In days to come, there'll be a generation raised up and they'll be very thankful that we gave them something that said right, wrong. Here's the narrow path, broad path. You choose the path you want, but here's the narrow path. This is what we believe. This is how we live. You know, I tell our people like this, we got a code we live by. Now, I raised three children. They're all adults. Two of them are boys. And you know, sometimes you just got to look at your boys and say, son, we don't do that. You don't say that to your mother. You're not going to act this way. You're, for my case, of course, you're a piper. Now you're going to act like it. You're not going to be embarrassment to me and my dad and my grandfather, my great grandfather. We've had generations in this community to try to preserve our name, and I'll be dang if you are going to mess up our name. <laughs> and she said that has to come from a deep voice with a dad that that kid knows it's bigger than me, stronger than me. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, yes, sir. 
we need some spiritual fathers in the church. It's going to look at a congregation and say, hello, hello, y'all, this is Northgate. We don't act like that. I mean, if you want to act like a fool, you can go to any other church you want to act like a fool. You've got that right. But if you're going to be a part of this bunch, we don't act that way. We treat people a different way. We live by code. You know, we, we, we don't play games back and forth. We're not perfect, but we are serving one that is perfect. And as our example, you know, we just keep on reaching for perfection. You know, you, you, you think about athletes, and it's a lot like, it's a lot like that. You, you know there's no perfect athletes, but man, you, you put perfection out here for these athletes, and you say, but don't let that stop you from trying. You strive every down, 100%. You're not always going to make it. But listen, when you shoot for the stars, it'll give you the right direction. And you just can't say, well, you know what? I'm not perfect, so why try? Doctrine is going to be in vogue. Number three, teaching in the church, like the school of ministry, and the place of elders is going to be really appreciated in days to come. We have elders in our church. I mean, every time, and Daniel, would you agree with this? Like every time that we anoint, we don't have a huge number, but we've got a number of elders uh, a, a few are governmental elders. Then we have ministry elders. And ministry elders are those that we lay hands on and publicly announce that they are elders in the church. Now they can do marriages. You know, they, they do funerals. They pray for people. They visit people in the hospital. But every time we anoint and set someone in a place of an elder, it's almost like the whole congregation just, they breathe a little sigh of relief. Wow. It brings safety, security, yeah. order. Authority, order. Function, blessing. Number four, you're going to see more and more pastors who don't want to be full-time. They're going to work out in the community. They're going to coach football games and own their own businesses and work in the community. See, when I, when I became a minister, one thing I noticed is how proud people were to say I'm in full-time ministry. It, they really wouldn't say I've been in ministry 50 years. I've been Full-time ministry, 50 years. <laughs> Did you hear the news? I'm now in full-time ministry. <laughs> you know, but what they don't tell you is they used to work down at the mill for $80,000 a year. Now they're making $15,000 a year and their family's starving. But I'm in full-time ministry. It's like, really? You know, you, you're, you're, your kids are going to be messed up. Like, you got to really think this through. And What's going to happen is you will see guys be like Paul and they're going to be making tents and casting out demons on the side. I mean, they're going to be doing ministry, but it's going to involve the marketplace. We're going to see that more and more. The fifth trend is going to be making disciples as the number one purpose of the local church. We're we're here to make disciples. And see, you don't make disciples 1,000 people at a time. You make disciples by learning someone's name, inviting them over to your house for dinner, letting them come over and eat pizza and watch the Browns and Bengals, or the Buckeyes, whatever. You know, you invite, them, you invite them to your house, you live life with them, you take them in, you embrace them. And that's why local church is going to be able to do the work of the kingdom in a way that we don't worry about how large we are. Like, who cares about that? This is a family. Number six, I mentioned this earlier. The definition of success is going to be the condition of our city. And and the condition of the city will become more and more paramount and in the front of people's mind when they think about their church. Number seven, 
the church will become a true community. I want you to go back and think about the Jewish communities all over the, the, the Roman Empire, the, in, in Europe today, all over the world. They are a community. And they know how to be a community. I look at the Amish and the Mennonites, and I think there's something to learn. It's like they're a community. They take care of each other. They celebrate each other's birthdays and they celebrate the birth of babies and they celebrate their weddings and their sons marry daughters and their daughters marry their sons. and Not in the same family I'm talking about. <laughs> I am from southern Ohio, you know. We're just across the river from Kentucky. <clears throat> I tell people when you come down to my neck of the woods, the most common question in divorce court is, now if we get divorced, are we still cousins? <laughs> They're a true community. And when you see that, there's something wonderful and wholesome about that. The church, the local church, has to be that kind of community. And one of the things that I've always, I told James Taylor, I don't know how many times, and you are the same way. You've got the ability to create community. And it's a beautiful thing. You bring people together. You bring people together. You know, I used to tell people our church is like the island of misfit toys in the old Rudolph. Remember that one? I'm going back a few years. Remember the island of misfit toys? I said, that's like our church, man. We just, we just, people just come in here and, and it's amazing. They're, they're like misfits and screwballs and they get in here and then all of a sudden God gets a hold of them before long. They, they got a job and then they get promoted and then they, then they own the business. I'm like, dude, what is going on with you? There's like an anointing in our church for success in the marketplace. It's incredible. And I remember a time when, you know, we, we didn't have anyone that could write a check more than, you know, three digits, hardly. And I have people in my church and, you know, people that we've raised up in our ministry. It's just at any time that we needed something, it's like, whatever you need, Pastor. Because the first thing you got to war with is your tithe. That's like your first weapon. And it's important. So that's it. That's it. Consider your ways. Let me pray. God, I thank you that you've given us an opportunity to be in this house, to enjoy our worship, to have these kids drawing pictures and hanging out in the front row. Thank you, God, that we've got some gray-haired people that have been through battles and... (laughs) Jimmy, you're one of them now, bro. (laughs) Thank you, God, we got young couples in here in in the strength of their life. I thank you, God, we've got mature saints and we've got new saints. And Lord, I pray that you would deposit in this house a community. I pray you would deposit in this house prosperity and success for the people that tithe that can handle what you want to pour out. Lord, I pray in this house that you would bring such structure, it would be like Noah's Ark in a drowning streetsboro, that people would would knock on the door and say, let me in, I need this place. I pray that you will bless them and prosper them, and I pray, God, that you will grow this church to plant another, and grow this church to plant another, and continue to grow this church And I pray that they would, through your time and your strategy, be able to raise up and just plant churches all over this region. 
Bless them in that, I pray. We pray for the Love Joy family, that you would bless them, keep your hand upon them. I pray for these kids, that they would just enjoy being sons and daughters of the pastor, and that there would be no pressure on them at all, more than any other kid in this church. Bless their family, bless this extended family. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the North Beat. If you would like to donate to this ministry, please go to www.thenorthgateoh.com and click on the link at the bottom of the homepage.